Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 179 with Jessica Jackley of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine, and also the host of the Founder Podcast. If you are new to joining us, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs and founders around the world and really try and unpack and learn from their experiences from building extremely massive businesses. They're either number one or two in their industry. They're proven entrepreneurs. They've done some crazy stuff, amazing founders. And today's guest, her name's Jessica Jackley. And uh, wow, she's done some incredible stuff. Um before I jump into talking about Jessica and what she's done and what you can expect in this episode, I just wanted to say this will be the last official podcast episode for the year. Uh, it will be 2017, the last week this goes live. Next week, we're not producing any content. And I'm actually feeling pretty tired right now. It's 1 a.m., just grinding it out, just making sure I finish everything for the year up nice and just organized and really started to prep for 2018. Uh, we're doing a big uh, off-site uh, founder retreat, second week of January. It's going to be awesome. We're going to align the team and uh, we're going to set some seriously big goals. We've got a lot planned for next year, which I'm really pumped about. And I think, you know, if there's one thing I could share with you guys is, oh, I'm so big on focus now. We did a lot this year at Founder, too much in fact. I just want to focus, I really, really want to just focus on producing just world-class magazines, world-class content, and world-class educational courses. That's what we're 
currently going to focus on next year. Uh, I want to do a SaaS product, probably 2019. I want to do another Kickstarter, probably 2019. Uh, and we might do a little bit of stuff on YouTube, but that's about it. So that's about what I'm thinking about. And uh, yeah, I need to get some sleep. So what is happening in this episode? Well, Jessica is the founder of a company called Kiva. And this is an amazing social enterprise Uh if you guys are not familiar with it, I'm a massive fan. They do microfinancing loans, and pretty much how it works is you can, uh, you know, uh, it connects people in developing countries to be able to get access to capital, and you can sponsor, you know, not necessarily sponsor a person, but you can give them access to that capital, and uh, they can do all sorts of things like start little businesses. Uh, so it's just an absolutely incredible initiative. Uh, they've done over a billion dollars in microfinance loans. So incredible achievement. She's a very, very smart founder. You're going to learn a ton. And this is something we get asked a lot. You know, how do you start a social enterprise? How do you start a movement like this? How do you how do you keep going when, you know, you're not really making any money? And this is the interesting part, right? With these social enterprises, you can actually make them for profit. Uh, so we talk about all those kinds of things and, uh, you know, everything that Jessica's learned and all along the way. So that's it from me, guys. I hope you have a fantastic year. I look forward to making 2018 the best year yet. And I hope that is the same for you. I wish you nothing but success. Hope you have a great Christmas, New Year's and holidays and take a bit of a break and uh, just relax and uh, recharge for a big year next year. But that's it from me. Hope you're enjoying this episode, and if you are enjoying these episodes and this podcast, please do take the time to leave us a review. Helps us more than you can imagine. All right, guys, now let's jump into the show. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? So one of the great things about entrepreneurship is there's nobody to ask. I mean, it's for better and for worse. Nobody gives you permission, right, to go start trying out your ideas in the world or um, doing a little experiments that you want to do to to see if stuff sticks and see if see if stuff works. And so I got my job just by starting to do it. <laughs> um, and in all seriousness, I any other actual formal kind of um, contract or agreement that I have around employment, like oh, no, being a venture partner with a fund or even teaching. I teach at USC. Any anything that's a quote unquote real job. I've been approached um, to have, and I haven't applied. I don't remember the last thing I've applied for. I may not in my adult life have really applied for anything. So for whatever that's worth, I, I think when you want to work and live entrepreneurially, you learn very quickly to stop asking for permission because there's, you know, there's no meta permission giver out there. Nobody out there dubbing people official entrepreneurs. You just start doing stuff. <laughs> so how did you so, start doing stuff? Like uh, was, was Kiva your first venture or have you done other things? It was. Or, yes? Yeah. So I, well, okay, way back, way, way, way back. Um, I graduated college and, in 2000. I'd studied philosophy and poetry and like the opposite of business. I'd never taken any kind of business or entrepreneurship course. I had no interest because I honestly thought business was bad. I thought business was about being greedy and taking and, you know, piling up wealth for oneself. And I wanted to be a giver. I wanted to help equalize things in the world and 
So I thought business was the opposite, right? The bad guys, the takers. I wanted to be on the good guys side. So graduating with my liberal arts degrees, <laughs> I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. I, I only knew I wanted to go try to work for a nonprofit. That was hard to do because nonprofits don't have the capacity usually to recruit at job fairs and stuff on campus. So without a job upon graduation, I moved to California kind of on a whim. I was in love with a boy who lived out this way. And I ended up just staying and um, begging my way into a temp job at first. And that temp job led me as a, an administrative assistant at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, but specifically within the business school in the Center for Social Innovation, this research center there that um, is really this kind of magical place where everyday people are thinking about solving you know, social problems with uh, business skills and entrepreneurial thinking. I happened to land in the right place. So anyway, I was there for three years, like doing admin work, planning events, et cetera, et cetera. And one night, one of the lectures that I crashed was a guy, Dr. Yunus, Dr. Muhammad Yunus, talking about microfinance. And I thought, I want to do that. And so the fast forward, you know, kind of version of this story is I basically quit my job a few weeks later and begged my way into an internship in East Africa in Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania doing a survey for this nonprofit. And the survey was around sort of impact uh, on standard of living and um, basically how their their products and services, their, their, their main offering was a $100 grant at the time. I was tasked with finding out how much that had impacted people's lives. Now, to be clear, it wasn't even a micro loan. It was a grant, but it was good enough for me, the non-business major. I thought it's close enough. And so I went there and I, um, I tromped around East Africa for three months. And it was there that the idea for Kiva sort of began to emerge. And the idea was super simple and straightforward. It was not as many books and, I don't know, business school case studies and things like that will write about it. It was not. Thus was born the idea for the world's first peer-to-peer micro-lending marketplace. I mean, it was, hey, what if we lend money? to our new friends in Uganda, wouldn't that be fun? And then what if they pay us back? And what if we, you know, spam our friends and family to collect the money little bits at a time? We, I wasn't even, we weren't even using the language of crowdfunding. It was just that. So I'll stop there. That was the idea for Kiva. That's how it was sort of originated and, um, and got going. Yeah. Wow. And that was 2005, right? Yeah. We did our first pilot round of loans, um, spring, through fall of uh, 2005. Yeah, that's right. Gotcha. So fast forward to now, 12 years later, like, did you ever think it would turn out to what it is now? You know, I don't know. It's funny. I I, I am a good visionary on some things, but not on others. Uh, And I I just didn't, I I think I've, I've, I never saw where it would be today, early, early on. But as it started to grow and, and change, I think I started to glimpse what it could be. So, you know, in our wildest dreams in the very beginning, I was excited to see it spread to, you know, a, a dozen different countries and then maybe two dozen. And <laughs> I don't know. It, it's just so funny. I, I, I get it. I'm much less naive now, which isn't saying a ton. I was super naive then and probably still am about a number of things today. But I think it was a strength because I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't care. I didn't, I wasn't obsessed with this idea that something's only worth doing if it can grow and scale and be a billion dollar company. I didn't care. I wanted to 
have a different kind of relationship and connection with the people that I was meeting in East Africa. So that was the goal to, to try this kind of experiment out. What would it be like to lend 25 bucks and have them repay? Like, wouldn't that be fun? And so I was not obsessed with the idea of scalability and growth at the beginning. I was, I was really deep in that specific little pilot, that, that specific experiment. And I think that that's a good thing. I feel sad sometimes when I see people, whether students or postgrads or, or people decades after that, um, who are paralyzed by this idea that they have to know how the story will end, or they have to know exactly how to grow this thing to have so many zeros at the end, or to, to, to reach millions or billions of people. You don't always know that stuff starting out. And a lot of people won't start if they, if they don't know that they think that it's not, not worth it, not good enough just to, just to experiment. Hmm. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. Cause I think it is like so common that, as founders, you have to have this visionary idea, but you know, for you, twelve years later, what what parts did come true and what parts didn't come true? That's what I'm I'm really curious about. Twelve years on, sure. Well, I'm really happy and um, heartened to see the purity of the idea still, I think, alive and well. Like, you know, there's so many add-ons, so many other manifestations of this thing. Of course, there were conversations at the beginning, and I think probably. You know, I haven't been full time in the office for years at this point, so I don't know <laughs> what's talked about there today. But I, you know, for a while in the early days, of course, we talked about adding on interest to the loan and having meaning, meaning because of course uh, borrowers pay with interest, and it's all on the website, easy to discover. But if you need me to walk through, I'm happy to do that. Basically, though, the idea of providing interest back to lenders, you know, that was an idea since the beginning, but we didn't do that. We wanted to keep it pure and simple and a you lend 25, you get 25 back. And I'm glad to see that that's remained. I'm glad to see, I think, really the spirit and the heart of this kind of partner to partner, uh, respectful connection that a loan can create. I'm glad to see that I, I do believe that's still the case. You know, I didn't want it to lapse into the same old tricks. And I don't mean tricks in such a negative way. Let me rephrase the same tactics that a lot of traditional NGOs and nonprofits somewhere along the way decided was the best way to get business done. You know, that cycle of making a would-be donor feel guilty and shameful and making them feel bad enough to whip out their wallet and give so that they feel better about themselves. It just, it was kind of a messed up set of uh, incentives, emotional and otherwise. And so I'm glad to see that I think Kiva's remained pretty pure and hasn't compromised on its core values. I mean, not perfect, but it's done a pretty darn good job and I'm glad to see that. And what about the scale? Like, can you tell us around like the impact? Like, like how far you've taken it right I mean, now? Like, how, like how many micro loans? Yeah, been- I mean, I'll tell I'll tell you this: the website updates daily, so you should you should go there and look. But you know, the quick and easy is it's over a billion dollars in loans. Yeah, wow. And did you imagine yeah. that it would be that size? I mean, I started to a few years in, but at the beginning, it just it. That's just not honestly, if I had stopped and forced myself to maybe, but uh, it wasn't how I was thinking at the beginning. I was thinking, how can we do this one particular idea and do it in an excellent way and in an authentic way? And then it blew up and scaled. So no, I was not thinking, and I certainly, I want to make this really clear. I think I have, just in case. I was not driven by that. That was not the goal. Like, let's get big fast. It was, let's do this right. Let's do this carefully. Let's do it 
with an adherence to and a prioritization of the values that matter to us. So, so you started you started Kiva. How, how did you build early stage momentum? Because micro lending was wasn't a thing back then. Well, so micro lending's been around for a few decades. What no one had been doing was putting it the experience online, and certainly not for the retail donor slash investor slash lender. You know, it, it, none of it, none of it was easy to do online um, in any form. So, yeah, we did that. But you know, we we I think uh, I think it's a talk by Bill Gross who actually runs uh, Idea Lab out here in LA, where I'm like a few blocks away from it right now as I'm driving to pick up my kids from school. But basically, he has this wonderful TED talk and talks about um, the biggest thing, the biggest determining factor in the success of a venture is timing, right? And so I think we had great timing. We didn't know it at the time, but we did. So being able to launch during what happened to become the year of micro credit or, um, for the UN. And it happened to be the year that Dr. Muhammad Yunus, you know, three years after I heard him talk, won the Nobel Prize for his uh, work pioneering modern microfinance. And it happened to be the case that it was just out there a lot. People started to understand it. And I think technology and people's, people's acceptance and um, familiarity with and comfort with utilizing technology to even do something as simple as make payments online. Like I think everything was just at the right moment in time. Um, people were comfortable and, and kind of got it. So we certainly had to explain what microfinance was, but uh, we got lucky because for example, for example, after Eunice won the Nobel Peace Prize, there would be these articles. Like one of them was in the Wall Street Journal and it was um, right after he had won, you know, Dr. Eunice wins the Nobel Prize, blah, 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 blah. You too could be a microfinancier. Go to Kiva.org. <laughs> like we rode those, we rode that wave. So I'm, I think in the very early days, we were lucky to get momentum from just the buzz that existed in general. And also we really did get lucky with the right kind of media and coverage and the right kind of ambassadors in the first month after we officially launched, um, October to November of 05, we had 300 blogs, right about 300 some, I mean, maybe more, right about Kiva, including two of the three largest in the world at the time. And so suddenly, you know, it wasn't just my mom and dad and our friends and family coming to the website. It was an onslaught. And we'd post, we'd put a loan, uh, a need up and it would be gone in minutes. Like there, there was so much traffic, we could hardly keep up. So we got lucky with that because it's, it's one thing to get traditional media. That's great. But to get buzz in the blogosphere at that early stage was kind of a big deal. Mm. So you got that early stage momentum, but what kept, what's kept it going? Like besides having an incredible product and concept and really just a great offer, like it's just such a no-brainer, like what else kept it going and, and to, to the scale? Uh- Let's see. I mean, I I would say we had a lot of amazing and dedicated people who believed in it. And we gave so much ownership to people early on. That's one of the great things about being a startup nonprofit with very little cash. <laughs> you know, the thing you can do is say, help, we need everyone, all hands on deck. And you actually give people real responsibility. It's not just lip service. So when people have real ownership over something that they believe in, and they feel important and significant, I mean, I think that's what most people want in their work, right? To feel like they're doing something that really matters. So we had people, a a handful of people, about a half dozen in the beginning, no one really getting paid, but just going like gangbusters. So that, that not only for our full-time staff, but even for volunteers and for others, 
it was easy for people to feel ownership over it. They got to make their specific unique loan portfolio. They got to share it and, you know, spread the word among their friends. And they, even with our volunteering opportunities, there, there were these, um, there are today. We, we created the ability for people to do sort of micro work, I guess. Like you could log on for an hour or two a week and translate a business posting from French into English. And like nobody triple checked you like that was, and then it went live on the site. So it was scrappy and fast moving. And we, like, there were just so many ways to put your fingerprints on it and to feel truly genuinely like you were making this thing go. Mm. And you think that's key in the early days? You, you can't, you have to be able to let go, right? As a founder. I do, but you know, I never, I, I try not to say you have to do this, you have to do this. I, I feel like one of the worst things you can do as a startup uh, founder is go look at someone else's rules for success. That doesn't, it doesn't work. I mean, it's, unless you want to look at a bunch of them and then choose a few of your own and then hopefully write your own rules as you go, you've got to be really, uh, you have to listen to your own reflections and insights and, ob- and ob- observe firsthand for yourself what's going on around you. So yes and no. I mean, I think, I think it was helpful to us and I'm sure there are a million other ways to look at it, but for, for us, for our story, that was crucial. Mm, yeah, I like that. So talk to me about ProFounder. How did the idea come about? Why did you decide to start it and what happened? Yeah, so ProFounder, so after I left Kiva a few years in, um, I went on about a 10, 11-month, basically kind of round-the-world tour. I think it was 12 or 13 countries writing case studies for Stanford. And um, I came back, and it was my last day in the office. I turned in all my case studies. It was a great sort of project to do in between ventures. And I started up this conversation with my old classmate, Dana. And basically we started to wonder to ourselves, gosh, why is it so hard to, you know, why is it so hard to invest in startups and small businesses and in, in our, on our classmate startups? Um, why is it always these accredited investors, whatever the heck they are, who have to put in a minimum of $25,000? Like that's crazy, <laughs> at least for us, right? So he said, why is it so hard to do that? Why can't you invest in the coffee shop down the street? We, we knew nothing about that particular, the, the web of uh, laws dictating why it, why it was. And in fact, you know, still is relatively so hard to do that. So long story short, we started to dig in, learn, and we answered the question with basically the creation of ProFounder, which allowed entrepreneurs in sort of a DIY fashion to raise in actual investment capital, like uh, from their friends and family and communities. Now, technically, these were through private rounds of fundraising, you know, private versus public. And they, what we did was design for, I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see, but the lowest common denominator, which is unaccredited investors, which is, you know, 90 plus percent of the population in the US. So we designed for everyone else, not just the same wealthy individuals who the laws at the time, and even still, make it easier for them to play. Like, of course, they they get to you know throw throw their money around and get to bet on startups and small businesses that they believe in, because the laws have somewhere along the way decided, um, or the lawmakers somewhere along the way decided that if you have money, then you must be smarter. I mean, if if I may be so bold, <laughs> so you know for the protection of people with less money, there the laws had been much more prohibitive. Um, and there's all this weird historical stuff like around protecting widows and orphans. We're talking laws from the 20s and 30s and 40s. So 
we basically stepped back and said, okay, the world's changing quickly. Even if you want to do a private round of fundraising from quote unquote friends and family, which is a legal term, believe it or not, we thought there was a better way to do it. Do it online, do it a la kind of a Kickstarter rate. So that's what we had built. What we learned to summarize quickly is that, yeah, it's possible. It was possible at the time to kind of Frankenstein together this set of legal exemptions and, and laws that would allow you to raise a private round of funding from friends and family. But at the time, crowdfunding was still not legal and it still wasn't that easy or inexpensive of a process. And people still didn't feel sure of it and still wanted to use lawyers. And so even though we had helped a number of different companies and helped them raise hundreds of thousands of dollars and our product was working, we saw the crowdfunding exemption within the Jobs Act, Title IV specifically, start to come along. And it was, it was just a twinkle in the eyes of lawmakers at the time. So we dove in, encouraged that, and even tried to like, well, we, Dana, my co-founder, flew to Washington more than once and lobbied Congress. And we actually got to help draft the language in that, in that law, because we figured that was the best way to promote what we really wanted to have happen in the world, which was to allow anybody to contribute to those businesses and actually have an equity stake or any kind of securities-based stake, whether it's revenue share, equity, or whatever. And then we pushed for that. And what that meant was, after the law passed, not to get too complicated, and we went, we got to be in the Rose Garden. It was so fun. <laughs> we saw the law, you know, the bill signed into law. But after that point, we realized that either we needed to just wait it out and wait for that law, for the SEC to create rules around that law to make it real, or we had to build something that was going to be a total gamble on how those on how the new um, uh, law was interpreted, again, to make rules, specific rules around it. At the time, this is, a, again, a very quick version of things, but at the time, there were also two other factors that came into play. So not only was it going to be a gamble either way, but, um, you know, and we had money on the table and I, I could have taken it. We both could have taken it, but I didn't really want to because, one, we were getting a lot of flack from the California Department of Corporations. Nothing specific, nothing actually literally threatening to us, but they were starting to ask a lot of questions and we knew that we weren't just going to be able to act first and apologize later. They were asking so many questions that we thought it would be hard to be nimble. The other part of it was I was eight and a half months pregnant with twins <laughs> and I thought, you know, is this the right time to pivot and to kind of start over for me personally? And I could have, like, that's the thing. I, I, I feel like I had everything out there to do it, but I, I feel really good about that decision. And I'll just, if it's okay, time-wise, I'll keep going for like 30 more seconds. Um, I wrote a chapter in my book about this, but I, I didn't know how to think about the story, my story, as a founder of, of ProFounder and sort of the decisions that I had made around that. I didn't know what to do with that for a few years after. I got approached even by um, somebody at one point and they said, hey, we're we're having this conference where we talk about failures and we think you should come and talk about ProFounder. And I'm like, well, gosh, thanks. But I'm happy to admit I have lots of other failures I can talk about, but I don't think ProFounder was a failure. I feel really good and clear and, and, and strong about choosing to not raise a series A and winding down the company and giving the assets to our investors. Like I feel good about that. And it took me a few years to figure out why exactly or how exactly to, to talk about it in a way that I hope, um, is more comprehensible. But basically, I was doing this exec ed class at Harvard Kennedy School, and we did a case study on 
one of the more famous, and I'm forgetting the year, but Everest treks, right? And basically, it's the story of this expedition, a bunch of people heading up to the top of the mountain. They've spent years, you know, training and looking forward to this and all this money to get there. And they're just about, you know, a few hours from the summit and a storm starts to roll in. And more or less, half the group says, screw it, we're going to get to the top. And they go and they summit and it's great. And they're up there. And then the other half just goes back down the mountain. Well, of course, the half that goes back down the mountain lives to tell. And the guys that summited, everyone died on the way down. And I really felt like, I really felt like, and I'm so sorry, I'm saying it in such a quick summary, kind of flippant way, and I don't mean to. But basically, I remember reading that case study and it hit me so hard. I thought, oh my gosh, I, we, you know, the goal wasn't the summit. Um, I feel like in a lot of, uh, not necessarily Silicon Valley culture, although it's certainly prevalent there, but just in a lot of entrepreneurial culture, certainly startup culture with where people aspire to get venture funding and, and do all those things that I rattled off earlier, right? Like start billion dollar companies and there's all these random arbitrary goals. I feel like the goal is to keep going at all costs and just never stop, right? Get the money when you can and keep pivoting and iterating and, and never die. And I really felt like given the climate uh, legally, given my own knowledge at that point of what was working and what wasn't with our business and, and what was happening in the crowdfunding world, I really felt like there were some storms coming. We probably could have survived them for a while, but there would have been a breaking point. And I feel like we turned back at a safe moment in time and we didn't take money that maybe we would have been irresponsible to take because it was such an unsure climate for years to come. So I feel really good about the decision. I feel like I didn't summit Everest, but I lived to tell, you know? <laughs> Hmm. This is a great story. Well, look, I'm super mindful of your time. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Just five seconds. Where's the best place people can find out more about your work? Oh, sure. Uh, if you, well, on my website, I try to keep things relevant there. It's just jessicajackley.com. And uh, follow me on Twitter. And I will be shouting from the rooftops when I have new things to launch, which I, I should in the coming year. So. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much yeah. for your time, Jessica. Hey, and, oh, it's a pleasure. And I, I thank you for being mindful of it. I really appreciate it. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.